Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. Turning to uh, God's Word this morning, we're in Genesis 25, if you would turn there. And I'll give you a a little bit of reminder as we catch up here uh, about our passage. Moses wrote this about 13 or 1400 years um, before Jesus was born, before the first century, sometime after God had rescued his people from Egypt. And the people had heard stories passed down about the beginnings of time and all this and how God chose them, but not really the details. So you can imagine, it's probably a hot topic around the fire at night, you know, to ask, well, why did God choose us? Why me? Why our family? I could imagine it'd be quite easy for them to think maybe it's because of us. Maybe it's because of something we did. Maybe we proved ourselves worthy. And Moses wrote this uh, story, I think, of the birth of Jacob and Esau as a clear reminder to them, but also to us, uh, that God does not love us or choose us because we are worthy. It's because of grace. So let's see that as we read verses uh, 19 through the end of the chapter of chapter 25. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padaniram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. The Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the older. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in the tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom, which means red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear it to me now. 
So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread, lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. The reading of God's word is breathed out from God and all of it is true. Let's pray once more. Our gracious heavenly father, it is a work of God and a work of the Holy Spirit if anything would get to our hearts. And so we just pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we would see wonderful and glorious and beautiful things out of your word. It would leave us with the assurance that we are loved by you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, I've learned a lot about Alexander Hamilton, one of our founding fathers recently. I wish I could say it's because I'm uh, such a learned scholar, historian like Ray, but it's uh, really because my children have had the uh, soundtrack to Hamilton on repeat and repeat and repeat over and over. And I really enjoyed it the first 62 times through. But um, the first song in this soundtrack and in the play, this uh, familiar, famous play that's on Broadway now, um, it it tells Hamilton's story, right? He, He... he grew up extremely poor in the Caribbean islands, and um, his father left him when he was 10. His, his mother died just two years later, and uh, such beginnings, one would think the child would grow up destitute, but not for him. He started studying really hard and working really hard, so much so that they recognized this guy's got potential. And so they took up a collection, they sent him to New York to, to go to school. And in the second song, Alexander Hamilton meets uh, Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr had already made a name for himself as a scholar and a politician. And, um, and in this song, Hamilton shares what was motivating him to work so hard. He asked Burr, he said, so how did you do it? How did you graduate so fast? And Burr responds, it was my parents' dying wish before they passed. And then Hamilton responds saying this, you're an orphan, of course, I'm an orphan. God, I wish there was a war. Then we could prove that we're worth more than anyone bargained for. On the outside, a brilliant man who changed the world. And on the inside, still an orphan still an orphan, longing to prove that he's worthy of being loved. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned against God, every child is born and everyone here is born with this inner desire to prove themselves. We see in Genesis 11, when they built a huge tower in Babel to make a name for themselves, all the way to our story here with Jacob, and again, all the way to here with us in this room, to find something or someone to prove that we are worth something that we are worthy of being loved. And so let's just look at that here in the, in the passage. What, how do we see our pursuit to be worthy of love? That's our first point, our pursuit to be worthy of love. Let's start with the story. And again, if you have your phone, your Bible, keep it out. We're gonna walk through the passage some. If you, were, if you remember last week's sermon, um, it was on how Isaac sent his servant to go find him a wife. And he came back with Rebecca, who leaves her family with this blessing from her family. 
family says, may you become the mother of thousands upon 10,000s. Some of you with small children are thinking, that doesn't sound like much of a blessing. But at that time, every girl dreamed of that, right? To have lots of children. That would be their, um, their family security, their legacy. Having lots of children was one way women at that time proved that they were worthy, especially worthy of their husband's love. So Rebecca then shows up looking all beautiful, riding on her donkey, sounds like an oxymoron, um, to, to marry Isaac. And at some point, Isaac, you know, passes on this great news. As you can imagine them laying in bed one night and being like, hey, just to let you in on a secret, the God of the universe has, has actually made a promise to, to my family and to me. You're gonna have children, and through them, is gonna become children like, like the stars in the sky. It's gonna become a great nation. No pressure, honey, you're gonna do great. <laughs> Kisses her, blows out the candle. It's like the beginning of a great Hallmark, ancient Hallmark movie. <laughs> so imagine what Rebecca must have been feeling in the midst of that when we read verses 21. This word should be highlighted. It says she was barren. She couldn't have children. And from verse 20 and verse 26, we know it wasn't just one or two years of infertility. It was 20 years of infertility. Statistically, there are many in this room who have had miscarriages and have struggled with infertility. And some for years and some surely here have never been able to have children. And you know better than anyone how devastating this must have been for Rebecca. I remember talking to someone years ago who was struggling with infertility and he said, every month, every cycle, it feels like another death. Another death, another death. So you can imagine how easy it would have been for her to feel like a failure to feel unworthy of Isaac's love. It would have been easy for her to say, where is God? What about that promise, God? It been easier for her to wonder, how in the midst of all this do I wait on God? It's not easy. It's not easy to know what he's up to. Some of you have felt that. And Isaac, even though he knows God is sovereign, um, he, he, he starts dedicating himself to prayer. He starts praying for her. Um, he, he knows God's able to keep his promise, but it still leads him to prayer. And uh, in the mystery of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, God says, I'm gonna answer your prayer. And, um, and in verse 21, she's pregnant. At some point, she recognizes it's twins. She must be thinking, of course. All right, it's time, let's go. Verse 22, though, all of a sudden, things go back downhill. These twins start, it says fighting, I think, or struggling, but the word literally is they start smashing together. It's such a violent pregnancy that, that she says, if this is the way it's gonna be, why am I even here, literally? I wish I was dead. And God responds with a prophe prophecy, and uh, she, she cries out you know, to God, uh, you know, didn't you make this promise? Didn't you... Aren't you gonna bless me? And God responds in verse 23. And he says this prophecy. He says, look, these two kids will be two nations, always fighting. And then he says something strange. He says, the, the, the younger will be the, the, the more significant, the greater. The, the older will serve the younger. 
Now, I don't know about you, but if I was Rebecca, I'd be like, well, that's great. I was really hoping some, for some relief here, <laughs> you know? Some ibuprofen would have been nice. Um, but this is a very significant promise. God spoke to her, and he basically says, I've got a plan. I've got a plan. So then the twins in the story, the twins are born. One, it says the firstborn, comes out all red and, and hairy, like a hairy cloak. Every mother's dream. <laughs> I know we're supposed to say, you know, all babies, all babies are cute and stuff, but, you know, I don't know about this hairy one. Uh, the second one comes out grabbing and holding the heel of the first. So they, they named the first one Esau, meaning hairy. They named the second son Jacob, meaning grabs the heel. 20 years of, of time to come up with names. <laughs> hairy and grab the heel. All right. But what's important here is that names, names are important because Jacob's name was defined his whole life in one sense. See, Jacob would always be tr grabbing for more, trying to catch up to his older brother, trying to earn his place in the family, trying to prove that he is, he's worthy of love. His brother says was a skillful hunter. Esau was a man's man. Jacob was kind of the quiet stay-at-home type. More significantly, it says that his mom loved him, but his father, his father loved his brother Esau. Now, you don't have to be expert at you know, parenting to realize this is like a parenting no-no. You don't just have then in the story a child longing to prove to his father that he's worthy of love. You have a, a father that's so impressed with his firstborn that he's finding his worth in his child. His family needs some major counseling. <laughs> so imagine the impact on Jacob, longing and striving always to earn his father's approval, to find something of worth. And I don't think we should skip over this too quickly because in the same way women have felt the devastation of infertility, some of us men have felt a deep wounding from our fathers. For some, it's too difficult to maybe um, even identify, much less talk about, but on the inside, you feel a subtle feeling that I, could, I, could, I just feel like I could never add up, never prove myself, never felt worthy of his love. It might look like all is well on the outside, but on the inside, you could relate with Hamilton, right? You feel like an orphan that's longing to find something or someone to prove you're worth more than anyone bargained for. Some of us parents might relate with Isaac. You know, finding too much worth through the performance of our children, putting too much pressure on them uh, to look good, to be smart enough, to be a good enough kid, not just going to a sporting event to enjoy seeing them play, but um, looking for them to, you know, the sporting event's an opportunity for, for my child to prove that my own worth. And so in the midst of all this, Jacob, he contrives a plan. If he can't earn his place in the family, then he'll get it from stealing it. 
He'll steal his brother's birthright. Why is this birthright so important to Jacob? The birthright gives the firstborn son at that time in that culture um, a, st- a status. He was the privileged one. He's, he gets most of the inheritance and he'll receive his, pr- his father's primary blessing. So for Jacob, this was his ticket, his ticket to become worthy if he could get the birthright. So one day Esau comes in from working or hunting and he's famished and Jacob, the language in the text, it's like he executes on this very calculated plan to not only, to, to give him some food only in trade, a trade for this birthright. And Esau makes the trade, despising, at the end of the text, you're, you're, the reader's meant to be almost left shocked. He traded this birthright just for some, not even a good steak, some lentil stew and some bread. See, we get a little insight into what's going on in Esau's heart here. He's, he's a man's man. He's got his father's approval. He's like the five-star athlete of the time. But yet, it still seems that that's not enough for him. He seems to be just as much as Jacob searching for worth, something to fill the void, except for him, it's an uncontrollable appetite for more. If he lived today, it'd be the one who constantly is overworking, impulsively buying things, jumping to different hobbies or recreations or, or even substances or something on a screen, tireless in his pursuit of something that will satisfy him and make him feel worthy. So it's good for us to pause and ask, where do you find yourself in this story today? Where do you see yourself? As I said earlier, this pursuit for worth is in all of us ever since Genesis 3, and it's good for us to identify where it is. Children, if you're a youth here, maybe you feel like you need to prove your worth through your grades or through some kind of athletic ability for your parents or a teacher or a coach to love you. Parents, um, maybe we don't just encourage our children to do their best, but we put pressure on them because their success makes us feel like a successful parent. Maybe your work is more than work. It's rather your ticket to prove yourself, make a name for yourself. And even as an older adult, you can still live like this, potentially even on, on the one side, a deep desire to to. Uh, to kind of make your success known so people know about it. Or maybe you have these deep wounds and regret of not having lived a worthy life. For me, I feel like I can relate with almost all of the above. Growing up, uh, moving every year to three years, I was shorter than everybody in my class by about like a foot. And I feel like I, I, in preparing this sermon, I can just, these memories of walking into a school saying, how can I prove myself? How can I make people know that I'm worthy of love, in essence? And I did that through, you know, athletics and different things. And um, now as a parent, you know, I still can feel that. Oh, man, I hope my my kids are successful because it reflects on me. All the way to even being on this superstar pastoral team, you know, hoping to find uh, an inner uh, desire to prove I'm worthy. It's also good to identify some of the sin patterns that come out of this. If you can identify with any of that, 
It's always just the tip of the iceberg. It's the, there's sin beneath that sin. For Esau, his pursuit led to an impulsive and selfish uh, demeanor, way of life that's out of control. Hebrews 12 says it, it was, it, it says Esau was unholy. He said, avoid that. Don't live an unholy life that's basically living for the world as if God and the promise don't even matter. For Jacob, it wasn't even better, any better. He seemed like the golden child, but his pursuit to, uh, to prove himself led to such bitterness, a desire to manipulate and control others, to even cheat them out of getting what he thought would make him worthy. And so much of Alexander Hamilton's life, his need to, to prove himself as worthy, it, was, it led to a lot of good things, right? Studying hard and writing, debating significant things for our country but it also led him to run all over people, to betray friends and ultimately to betray his wife with an adulterous affair. And then to protect his reputation, his worth, he actually published a 100 page article um, detailing every part of that affair. How humiliating for his wife. It should make us ask how much of our emotional ups and downs or our anxiety or overworking our uncontrollable appetites, our bitterness, or our need to control of others, or any of that really comes from an underlying need to prove ourselves as worthy to be loved. So that's our pursuit of worthy being loved. So let's look at, secondly, God's invasive love. God's invasive love. It's an invasive love that makes us worthy. You know, this thinking that if we prove ourselves to be worthy, then, then we'll be loved, it's, it's really all over in culture, our culture today, and really in every worldview and every religion. I mean, in our culture, pretty much everybody, if you prove yourself to be good in school or good in sports, uh, good at work, you tend to be more loved by your parents or your bosses or your coaches or your teachers. All religions have basic one, one basic message. If you do this, if you prove yourself to be good, if you keep the rules, then you are in and you are loved, you're worthy. The non-religious function like this too, right? It goes like this, if you believe these ideals, if you're tolerant of these people and these certain things, you're in and you're loved. If you don't, then you're out, you're not worthy. So the Bible and Christianity and this passage is so unique. This is like a bombshell Reminder that this is not how it works in God's economy. If you're reading this story for the first time and you come across verse 23, you know, it says the older will serve the younger, you, 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 the question you want to ask is why? Why? Why Jacob? You, you, you almost feel like you desperately want to read on and find an answer that points to something Jacob has done. Surely he, he's better. Surely he will prove himself as more worthy in some way. Yet he's not. He's just as unworthy as Esau and every other person in the Bible. And, and God has a pattern of doing this, right? You read through Genesis and even in the beginning, he, he chooses Abel over Cain. He, he chooses younger Isaac over Ishmael. Joseph 
is the youngest of his older brothers, and he's chosen. And Joseph's children, Ephraim, is chosen over Manasseh. Later, David is the youngest brother. And over and over, you want to say, why? Why? Every time I read through those passages, I'm looking. Now, why? Why did God do that? And I think if we're going to answer that, we have to let's skip to the New Testament. Here in 1 Corinthians, I think, is a good summary of why. This is based on 1 Corinthians 1. See, God loves to choose what the world considers foolish, to shame those who think they are wise. He chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the lowly and despised things to bring to nothing what the world considers so important. So that no human being may boast, no human being may say, I am worthy in the presence of God. Why does God do this? To demonstrate that no one is worthy. No one has proved good enough to earn his love. And God wants to put on display, a firework display, he's just gonna choose some for free by grace. And and I just wanna say, I wanna speak to your heart right now and just say, isn't this what you really long for? Underneath the drive to be good or present yourself as worthy, isn't this what you really long for? For someone to, to know you really well, to know all the ways that you don't deserve to be loved, but just to decide to love you anyway. They know all the ways you aren't worthy, but it doesn't deter them from having an affection and a delight in you. And you don't, you feel that you just don't have to prove yourself anymore. You're just loved. You know, I think marriage is a, is a good place that we long to find that, but um, you know, most of us don't. Marriage is really hard. It's easy um, for us to love the other person when they deserve it. It's easy, it's really hard for us to love the other person when we feel disrespected or unloved, especially if they failed us. Um, we tend to love those who are worthy of love. Just a, um, several years ago, a few years, just a few years into my own marriage, and Miriam and I were experiencing some of this, I ran across a, a really neat story I read about. Uh, it's a story of a, a guy named Ian and a girl named Larissa. They were college sweethearts. They were beautiful and smart and had everything going for them. And then all of a sudden, one day before they got married, Ian had a terrible car accident. It left him with a pretty serious brain injury. And so they, um, they waited for a few years to get married. But in despite, despite Ian's inability to fully recover, Larissa made a decision to continue through and marry Ian. I'll show you a short clip from their wedding day that I found online. Watch this. Ian and Larissa asked me to read a couple of quotes from a man named John Piper, who's a a well-known Bible teacher, and he talks about marriage and how it, this mystery refers to Christ and the church. And he says this, 
Marriage is not mainly about prospering economically. It is mainly about displaying the covenant-keeping love between Christ and his church. He says, knowing Christ is more important than making a living. Treasuring Christ is more important than bearing children. Either way, it is short. It may have many bright days, or it may be covered with clouds. But if we set our face to make of marriage mainly what God designed it to be, no sorrows and no calamities can stand in our way. Every one of them will be not an obstacle to success, but a way to succeed. covenant-keeping love between Christ and His church shines brightest when nothing but Christ can sustain it. When asked why she would proceed with the wedding, why would she choose to marry someone in that condition, Marissa's simple answer was, she loved him. She wrote this, in an article later, she said, we know that we have made a covenant to one another. Just as Christ made to the church, the church that he made that covenant with is so imperfect, so sorrowful, and so disabled. Just like our marriage, this church and this marriage are hemmed in by Jesus and eagerly long for heaven. He is their author and sustainer. And God wants you and I to live in such a love story of invasive, undeserved love. He is the God who knows that every single sin that you've committed against him, every thought and every shameful work, he knows that you are unworthy. And so we should ask, why me? And his answer is simple. I just choose to love you. It's Paul's explanation of this passage in Romans 9 of why he chose Jacob. Paul says before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, not by their good works, any ability to prove themselves as worthy, he says, I just love them. And this love, of course, is completely free to us, but not to God, Right? our need to prove ourselves and all the sinful patterns that come from it, all the ways that we've rejected and turned away from God deserve to be punished. And so Jesus, who's worthy, who's full of glory and majesty, he sets it all aside and heads to the cross like a worthless criminal to be despised by his heavenly father, like he was the one who was always scheming and cheating or with a reckless worldly appetite or anything else that you and I had ever done. And he puts it on himself and for all who simply believe Jesus went to the cross for you, your unworthiness was punished there, all of it. Christianity has a simple message. For all who simply admit that they are not worthy, God makes you worthy. You are in, you are loved, 
It's a picture of a prodigal son coming home with his head down and full of shame, admitting to his father as he did in Luke 15, I'm not worthy to be your son. And the father's smiling and saying, exactly, you're not worthy, kissing him on his forehead and says, but I love you and you are my son. And he throws a big party. Toward the end of the play of, Alex, of Hamilton, uh, the song, there's a song that says, it's, it's called, It's Quiet Uptown. And during the song, it depicts Alexander and Eliza walking in the city alone, uh, separately. Hamilton has lost almost everything in his life with this reckless pursuit to prove himself, um, along with not only having an affair with another woman, but the public humiliation of his wife, Eliza. And he's singing to Eliza, he's singing, I know I don't deserve you. I'm not worthy of your love, but I long to be back by your side. He's longing for grace. He's longing for undeserved love. And the chorus sings, he's trying to do the unimaginable. And then Eliza's sister comes in and she sings this, there are moments that words don't reach. There's a grace too powerful to name. They come together in the garden. Let's picture them coming together. One reviewer of the play at this uh, comments on this powerful scene, he says this, is perhaps the quietest moment in a show that can often appear frenetic without changing her empty, exhausted expression Eliza suddenly takes Alexander's hand as the chorus in loving harmony simply intones the word forgiveness. He goes on and says, forgiveness is the hard thing to feature in a work of art because if it's real, it often seems irrational, unjustified. Watching Hamilton break into tears as Eliza finally returns his line of its quiet up, uptown, it doesn't make any sense. He says, forgiveness often doesn't. It goes against every instinct we have, but that's what makes it beautiful. See, God's choice of Jacob, his love for you and me, it seems almost irrational if we really consider it, our unworthiness of it. Being loved apart from having to prove ourselves as worthy? Really? It goes against every instinct to believe it. Yet for us, for anyone in this room this morning who will simply Admit you are not worthy. I'm not worthy, God. We stop trying to prove ourselves. God says, you'll find incredible rest from my invasive love. A man came up to me after church, after preaching this last night, and he says, look, I was that child. He says, I was a child that never could earn my father's approval. And then he gave me about four or five examples of, of cringeworthy examples of how his father um, had demeaned him. And he said, I carried all of this into my adult life, but knowing this man, um, I said, this doesn't seem like you now, what changed? And he simply said, I know the forgiveness and love of God now. <laughs> he was no longer an orphan trying to prove his worth. He's made worthy by the work of Jesus. He knew he was a child of God. 
And the more you and I experience the undeserved forgiveness and invasive love of God, it frees us. It frees us like Eliza. To all accounts, we think she was a lover of Jesus and understood this. It frees us from some of the bitterness and anger we hold on to. It frees us even to do the unimaginable, to forgive those who have really hurt you. A spouse even, or a parent who's deeply wounded you, who's not not worthy of your love. It frees us to love our spouse or our children, less based on them being worthy of it or needing to prove themselves. It frees us from finding our worth in our kids or needing to control or manipulate others or go to the world to satisfy an endless appetite, worldliness, in short, in short. God's teaching us here that it will free us to love others with the same undeserved, invasive love that we have received from God. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God who's in heaven, I think deep inside every one of us want to believe this, whether people are believers or not in this room, whether they're Christians or not. I think all of us have this longing to be loved by our creator in a way that gives us the security knowing that we're a child of God and we can stop trying to prove ourselves in spite of all we've done. And so we pray, Father, that your love would invade us. As we leave here, we pray that we would leave change with this desire to be the type of Christian, the type of church that loves others as we have been loved. We know all this came through the precious work of Jesus on the cross and the type of love that continues to love us to the very end. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org. Thank you.